and be a little vulnerable with you guys and share one thing that I cannot do without. It is this beverage here. Cheer wine. Okay? Now, before you think I'm an alcoholic, this is a non-alcoholic soft drink full of sugar. So I may have an addiction, but it's not to alcohol. It's to uh, delightful sugar. I mean, this tough stuff tastes so good. I, I was raised in North Carolina. That's uh, generally where I, I think of as uh, my you know, home state being, if you will. And Cheerwine is made there, and it's really only available in the southeast. If you get lucky, sometimes you can find it in odd places, but generally only available in the southeast. And uh, obviously, we're very, very far from there. So when my parents did visit last week, I, I kid you not, they brought several dozen bottles of this stuff with them. And I ration it. Like, I'm really careful about when I drink it. It's, there's, you got to drink it all before it goes flat, because, you know, it doesn't stay forever. But once it's gone, it's gone. Like... I don't know when we're going to be back to North Carolina or somebody's going to come visit us. So, you know, I got I to gotta take good care of this stuff. So, anyways, I, I share this as just kind of a fun haha, but I, I do love it. And uh, I made my parents take a ton of it with them. So, whether it's addiction or not, that's up to you to decide. But I do want you to think about what is one thing that you cannot do without? And not just the physical things, but maybe the things you experience in life. The deeper things, such as what if nobody respected you or even liked you? What if you were generally unsuccessful or lonely? Maybe if you had zero likes on Instagram, no matter how much you posted, nobody just seemed to like what you had to say. In other words, what are you devoted to? What is it that you are absolutely seeking and wanting? Well, the ancient Israelites struggled with being devoted to a false god named Baal. And we started looking at that last week in our new series, Patient Pursuit. And Baal is a store, or was, a storm and fertility god. And he brought rain, and they lived in a climate where you needed rain during the rainy season. And they would answer the question, what is one thing I can't do without? They would generally and often answer that question with Baal. We need Baal. If we don't worship Baal, we're not going to have the rain and then we're not going to eat. It's a deep-seated devotion that they had to Baal. And we ultimately do the same thing. We're not worshiping Baal the storm god, but there are idols in our lives that we are worshiping that we ought not to worship. We do the same thing. Returning to the same things, or the things of this world, sometimes real, sometimes imaginary, just in our head, we turn to them to meet our needs instead of to the Lord. But the Lord gets the last word. And as we're going to see in today's passage, the Lord is working and is seeking to turn the hearts of his people back. We're in this series, Patient Pursuit, really asking the question of how do we go astray, but also what is God's response to that? And spoiler alert, he patiently pursues his people longing for them to see him and know him. And specifically, we've been looking at the ministry of the prophet Elijah in the book of 1 Kings, and we're going to see a little bit in 2 Kings as we go on. But we're seeing how God is working through Elijah to bring his people back to himself. And it's helpful for us to look at this because God has not changed. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so the way that he interacted with his people then is the same way he interacts with his people now. We're going to get to see his compassion and his mercy. 
Let me pray, and we will get into the scriptures. Father, I pray that today we would have soft hearts. Help us to see our idols, and help us to worship you instead. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so, where are we at in the narrative? What's going on? Well, last week we saw that this wicked king Ahab, a king of the northern kingdom, shows up on the scene. At this point in Israel's history, it is split into two different political kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah. The northern kingdom Israel pretty much goes astray from day one and never has any good kings that help them worship the Lord. So we have Ahab, a king in the northern kingdom, who's like the worst of the worst, and he was enticing Israel to worship Baal. So the Lord, the God of Israel, Yahweh, stopped the rain to get Israel's attention. He's seeking to turn their hearts back. And Elijah was the one who kind of announced this, and then he's been hiding from Ahab. And we saw some of his uh, exploits last week. One, uh, one word I want to mention again is that in the text, whenever you see capital L-O-R-D, Lord, that is a substitution for the divine name, Yahweh. So as I read, I'm going to be using the divine name, Yahweh, not out of, out of disrespect, but just to remind us that God does have a personal name, and he wants his people to know him personally. And so it's kind of striking as you read, when you hear Yahweh over and over and over again, because we think of the Lord, the Lord is kind of just a substitute for the name God. In one way it is, because God is God, so whatever you call him, it's God, as long as it's a title he's given, of course. But at the same time, when you see that personal name, it, it kind of evokes something in us where we realize, oh my goodness, okay, God is, he is a personal God. He's not just some God up here, but he is imminent. He is with us. So that is why I do that, try to bring our minds back to the way the text would have originally been read. So, okay, it's enough of an intro. Let's dive in today. Let me, give you our, let me give you our main point for point number one before we dive in. It's this. Our idols cannot save us. Our idols cannot save us. So, we're going to be in chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to skip ahead a little bit in verse 17. So, verses 1 and 2. After many days, the word of, the, of Yahweh came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. We're going to skip ahead to to verse 17. There's a little interlude in the story, which we don't really have time to unpack today, but I welcome you to go back and read it on your own if you like. But picking up in verse 17, When Ahab saw Elijah, so Elijah has come to Ahab, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of Yahweh and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. All right, we're going to pause there. And see this brief interaction that Ahab has with Elijah. This is actually the only place in the narrative at this point, uh, or going forward, that Ahab actually speaks. He's shown to be pretty incompetent and out of control. He's not able to assert his authority and power uh, later on. But Ahab has a posture that sees himself, or sorry, that fails to see himself as the problem. Because who does he blame? 
he blames Elijah. He's like, is it you, you troubler of Israel? You're the one causing these problems, Elijah. You're the one who has kept the rain. And Elijah's like, no. The reason it's not raining is because you aren't worshiping the Lord. You aren't worshiping Yahweh. This is a curse that we see happening in Deuteronomy, where God says, if you don't worship me, I'm going to withhold the rain so that your hearts will be turned back. Ahab is unable and unwilling to see himself as the problem. This needs to lead us to ask the question, what is my heart when I'm approaching the problems in my life? Am I willing to see myself as the problem? Or am I blaming everything out here and the people out here for my problems? Instead of seeing, okay, what is my heart? What is going on within me? And that's also a posture I want us to approach the text with. What is this text trying to tell me about me? Not how awesome I am, but how I need the Lord, how I'm broken. Okay, let's keep going and see the tension rise a little bit. Verse 20, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of Yahweh. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of Yahweh, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. All right, so we have this contest that comes to us. This is one of the more famous passages in the Old Testament, this contest between Yahweh and Baal. We often forget, though, that this contest is actually insulting. It's insulting to the Lord. What has he done for the past three years? He's withheld the rain. The people have been worshiping Baal and there's been no rain. Yahweh was the one who said, hey, I'm not going to let it rain until I just said so. So already there's been a contest. Yahweh has undoubtedly won. He is the God of the universe, Lord of all creation. He spoke things into existence and he withholds the rain. And yet he says, okay, we're going to have another contest. Maybe one Instead of rain, we're going to have fire, calling down lightning from above. It's an insulting contest. And that's where we get kind of the tension created in this story between Baal and Yahweh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, Elijah by himself with 450 prophets of Baal. Picking up in verse 25, Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. So they get to go first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us! But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god! Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. 
And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So here we have the prophets of Baal who are worshiping their idol, seeking an answer. Let me define an idol just for a second. The Mark Johnson definition is anything that you devote yourself to or worship in order to meet your needs and desires. Anything you devote yourself to in order to meet your needs and desires. Uh, One pastor calls it anything we value more than God. John Calvin said that our hearts were idol factories, that we're always desiring something else more than God. Now, our idols, generally speaking, are not statues anymore. Maybe it's green paper with faces of dead presidents on them. But we generally don't worship statues. But there are idols that we have in our hearts that we metaphorically bow down to. When you think about the first and second commandment, you shall have no other God before me and you, shouldn't, you shall not make any image. Those are first and second for a reason. Because those are the inclinations of our hearts. Instead of worshiping our creator, we seek to worship the creation. There are things in this world that we value more than the Lord. And oftentimes, it's us. We are the idol that we worship. So as we look at this idea of our idols not being able to save us, because obviously Baal is not answering... It's kind of two places I, I want to start. One is why our idols can't save, and then I want to look at what our idols actually are. So let's answer the question of why our idols cannot save. I'm going to give you three pictures, three biblical pictures of idolatry from this passage. The first one is that idols are mute. Idols are mute. Notice that the author says twice that no one answered. It's very clear. The idols do not respond. They are mute. Secondly, they're impotent. So not only can they not speak, they're also powerless to do anything. Again, no fire comes down from heaven. So much so that Elijah mocks the people who are worshiping Baal. He's like, so much of a god you've got. He's probably going to the bathroom somewhere. That's literally what he's saying. He's asleep. He doesn't care. He's an impotent god who cannot do anything. That's what idols are. They are impotent. So they're mute, they're impotent. And here's a key third thing that we often forget and overlook. We destroy ourselves. We destroy ourselves in trying to make them answer. Right? Think about the things that we worship and the lengths we will go to to get those things and the result that it has on our We will destroy ourselves in trying to make them answer. Here they are cutting themselves. They're raving around. The text says that they're limping around. It's the same word that they're limping between Baal and Yahweh. This is an idea of like, you're not doing yourself any favors. You're hurting yourself. So this is what they are doing to themselves in trying to get a God who cannot answer to answer. Think about how we will destroy families for sex. That's why affairs happen. Or we're trying to get some sort of emotional satisfaction. Why people will destroy their lives in gambling in order to get more money. 
It's a tragedy that right now gambling, I mean, you just watch any sporting event and you see just the enticement to gamble, gamble, gamble. It's because money becomes an idol and it says, I'm going to do anything possible to get that, even putting my own finances on the line in order to get it. It's idol worship. It's idol worship. So when you put all these things together, they're mute, they're impotent, and we harm ourselves to get them to answer, you arrive at the inevitable conclusion that idol worship is straight-up foolishness. It's just foolish. I want to read to you what Isaiah says in chapter 46, verses 1 to 11. Uh, Isaiah talks about idols a lot, all the prophets do. And usually they have pretty mocking things to say. And this is one of my favorite things, uh, just because it's very, uh, very clear in how he talks about idols. Starting in Isaiah 46, chapter, uh, or verse 1, I think we're going to have it up here, yeah. It says this, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. By the way, those are names of Babylonian gods, Babylonian idols. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. So their images are being carried around by animals. These things you carry are born and as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. So these idols will ride around on the animal. And so if the animal bows down or stoops down, so does the idol. Why? Because the idol is being carried around. Verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. So you get this contrasting picture, right? Where Yahweh says, hey, I'm the one who's carrying you. Idols have to be carried. But I, the true God, am the one who carries. Verse 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it on its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. It's impotent. It's impotent. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, carrying or calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Here God says, I am not like these idols. I am not like these idols. It's foolishness to worship idols, yet our hearts continually seek after them. Let me ask the question. So that's kind of why idols can't save. What are the idols that we serve? What are the bales that we chase after? Because we, I, I don't know about anybody in this room, but I assume you didn't wake up and, you know, start worshiping Baal. You didn't say, oh, Baal, come bring rain. You may have been praying to the Lord to bring some rain, which maybe we'll get some later today. We'll see. But what is it that we worship? I have a few that I just want to go through briefly that I think are common in our culture. I'll spend more time on the last one. The first one is just comfort. We are a a comfort-craving culture. And by comfort, I mean the ability to have no pressure placed on my life. 
the ability to have no pressure placed on my life. I'm just able to relax and not have anything that I don't want intrude on me. It's really interesting that this is the idol that we yearn for and long for. Think about the amount of comfort we have today compared to, say, two generations ago. We have more comfort today. You know, you're able to probably eat a wider variety of food. You're able to do a wider variety of things. We have greater health. We have greater comfort than ever before, but we're more unhappy than ever before. That idol of comfort has not met the deep longings of our heart. Comfort. We also want control and power or the ability to do what I want. I speak and it is so. That's generally why we love money because money we see as a way to have control and power. We also seek approval of others, hence our social media, wanting people to like it and do things. But also I think, especially in, in, just, in our current culture, a family-oriented kind of church culture, we also long to have a particular social standing. We want to be the family, or I want to be the couple, or I want to be the person who does X, Y, and Z. These things are true of me, and the people in our community, in our church, would think of me this way, kind of that social standing. But do we need that? Are we willing to be someone who is seen as odd for the sake of the gospel? Approval of others. Related to that is success of our children or the next generation. You don't have to have kids to long for and have an idol of the success of the people that I love and pour into. The success of my kids, I feel that often as a parent. I want my kids to be amazing at everything that they do. I want them to do things better than I did. And I know that it's a problem for me because when they fail to live up to my expectations or be the children that I want them to be, kind of that little feeling in my heart of disappointment. Like, geez, if only you could do it that way. So I know that in my own heart, that is an idol. Maybe relationship status, whether you're married or single, that can be an idol. I am this way, or I, and I want to be a different way, or I am this way, and I love the way I am. You can lift it up as an idol. Now, the biggest one I want to talk about is the idol of self. The idol of self. That is a huge idol in our culture. Now, self-autonomy, or the ability to define who I am, is a big issue for our culture. It would be easy for me to stand up here and kind of rave against how our culture struggles with self-autonomy. And it does. We are unable to define right and wrong with sexual orientation and even gender. We struggle with those things as a culture, as a whole, to get it right now. But we also know that we chafe when people correct us. This is, when you think about self-autonomy or the ability to define who I am, the easiest way to know, okay, how am I doing in this area, is what happens when I get corrected. Because if I feel like, ooh, I didn't really like that, that maybe a good indicator that something in your heart is worshiping yourself and that you are wanting to have complete say in who you are. And then when someone speaks into that, whether it be, you know, a person sitting here today or something in the Word, it might be a struggle. Okay, now, I don't want to talk about what's outside the church. I don't want to talk about our culture's struggle with sexuality. I want to ask how we in the church Worship the idol of self, because we are way more sneaky at it. But it is just as present here as it is outside those doors. 
just comes out differently. I think one of the ways that we struggle with this as Christians and in the church is that we view the church with the mentality of a consumer. I come here or I'm a part of this people in order to get something. Now, there is great blessing in being a part of the church, is there not? We come here and we experience the people of God and we worship. And Lord willing, we hear what's hopefully good teaching. So there is something that we receive from being a part of the body of Christ. But at the end of the day, that's not what being in the body of Christ is all about. When we're saved, we're not just saved from sin, but we're saved into a body. And not just the nebulous universal body of Christ, but that universal body of Christ is expressed in local congregations. Local congregations. Ideally, we're a part of that. And a good way to have the idol of, of kind of self autonomy or self-spoken into, a good way to speak into that is simply become a member. That way you're putting yourself under the authority of the church and also you are taking ownership in the church, saying I will speak into these people's lives and I'll let them speak into mine as well. Not just me from up front, but the congregation as a whole. We're a congregational church and many of you got to experience that last week and uh, I don't know, maybe if you weren't a member and you were there, you're like, I don't know if I want to be a part of this or not. Or, but uh, I think it's beautiful that we all hold each other accountable and we're in it together. So, that's just a simple plug to, to consider church membership if you haven't before. But we in the church, we do long for self-autonomy. Do we not? We've been raised in a culture of do what you want to do, be who you want to be. And it works its way out in our church where we want the church to conform what we want it to be. Instead of saying, okay, Lord, how have you called me to bless this place and to bless these people? So what are your idols? Your personal idols, those things that you can't do without. All right, let me repeat just our first point, kind of going back to it. Our idols cannot save us. Our idols cannot save us. Baal was silent. He did not answer. He did not answer. He could not answer. Because he's not real. Just not real. All right, let's go to, go to the second point. Because that's a pretty miserable place to leave us, right? If we just say, you're all idol worshipers. And just, you know, hey, I'm done. No, that, that's, that's not where we want to end because that's not the end of the story. We have a good and gracious God. And he does answer. So here's our second point. Yahweh is the true God who alone initiates and answers. Yahweh is the true God who alone initiates and answers. Let's pick up the story, starting in verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of Yahweh that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of Yahweh came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of Yahweh. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bulls in pieces, or the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. 
and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me. Why? That this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. So, Elijah has stacked the deck against the Lord. If something happens, there's no doubt where it's coming from, right? No lightning is going to light this stuff on fire. It's covered in water. And also, at this point in the story, I mean, there's not that much narrative tension because we know that God initiated this, so obviously he's going to answer. But at the same time, the altar had been thrown down. Why should God answer these people? They've been wicked. You know when you have a conflict with somebody and you have to call them and you know, you're on the phone and it's ringing. You're like, oh, please let it go to voicemail. <laughs> please let it go to voicemail. I'm a good millennial, so I don't like talking on the phone, period. So, you know, especially if I have to call somebody and it's going to be a sticky, it's, oh, oh, goodness, please, please let it go to voicemail. But this is not a call that's going to go to voicemail because the Lord will answer. Verse 38. Then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Yeah, brutal ending. It's actually not even over yet. The brutal part is, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. That is emphasized, it's stated twice for great emphasis, saying that yes, he is indeed the Lord. He is the one who was from the beginning. He is the one who purposes what will come and accomplishes what he has purposed. That is the God who brings down fire. And he does it miraculously. I don't know about you, but usually rocks and dust and water don't burn up. But here we have God burning up it all. It's a picture even of God's wrath being poured out on that sacrifice and not on his people. An image of the cross, really. Let's look at God in contrast to idols. Let's look at the true God in contrast to idols. We saw how impotent idols were, so let's look at Yahweh. First, we see that he initiates in compassion. Who's, who set this whole thing up? Wasn't Baal, wasn't Ahab, wasn't Ahab's and Baal's prophets. It was Yahweh. He initiates with his people. When you feel like God is not going to listen to you, remember this. He initiated with a wicked people. Elijah said he wanted them to know that he is God and that he turned their hearts back. That was in verse 37. He wanted them to know that. So he initiates in compassion. Secondly, he hears and is listening. Not just he's aware, but he's involved. He's actively listening. He's, he, he hears his people. He hears you when you cry out. He is yearning to answer. We saw this in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with thanksgiving, 
in prayer and supplication, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He hears. 1 John 5.14 says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. Elijah wanted the Lord to answer. And he did because he hears. He hears. Thirdly, the Lord answers in power. He did what Baal could not. He did what Baal could not. Baal was shown to be impotent, but Yahweh showed himself to have power. Elijah didn't have to cut himself. He didn't have to do a bunch of crazy dancing around the altar. He just said, Yahweh, will you answer? What did he do? He answered. Now, lest we think that we are on some different playing field from Elijah, James reminds us, he says, the prayer of a righteous man has great power. And he uses Elijah as that example. And he's using that to say that we are not unlike Elijah. We are part of God's people. And when we cry out to him, our God hears. He answers. He hears. He initiates. Lastly, he provides in love. He provides in love. Those idols, they didn't provide. They destroyed. But God provides. Let's look in verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. He's probably praying or maybe exhausted. Uh, The text isn't really clear. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, A little cloud, like a man's hand, is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. You know, it would get too muddy to travel. And in a little while, while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of Yahweh was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So here we have Yahweh providing in love. He brings the rain again. You know, what the world is going on here with this meal and, and this kind of celebration, it's the idea of the covenant being renewed. The covenant with God's people. They're eating and drinking in celebration. And then Elijah is going before Ahab, basically as, as a, a proclamation, declaring who God is. Going before the king, telling the people to worship Yahweh. It's a beautiful picture of God restoring relationship with his people. Now, as we're going to see next week, this is very short-lived. It lasts all of just this. In the very next verse, we're going to get into trouble. But we're going to pause there for this week. We're going to see that, man, God provides in love. He turned their hearts back. He provided the rain. He did it all. What did the people do? They just recognized who he was and declared out, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. That is what he calls us to do as well. When we feel stuck with no way out, when we feel like the ground around us is withering, maybe even here quite literally, for those of you who are farmers, we have to remember God is in control and he does provide. So again, our second point, Yahweh is the true God who alone initiates and answers. 
initiates and answers. Don't want you to lose sight of that initiating part. Sometimes it's easy for us to be like, oh yeah, God answers. But he initiates with you, with me. We have to ask the question of how do we respond to that initiation? There's two groups of people in this room, those of you who know Christ and those of you who don't know Christ, who have not placed your faith in him. And the call for both groups of people is to cry out to God and trust him. Specifically for the non-believer, though, is to cry out and trust him for salvation. To cry out and say, Jesus, I believe that you have died for my sins. See, we stand apart from God. We stand separated from him. We stand under the guilt that is owed to us. We, We stand guilty, I should say. We stand under God's wrath. But God, in his love and his mercy, sent his son Christ to die for you and for me. He lived a perfect life. And we have the the decision. Do we respond and say, yes, you are Lord, and I throw myself at your mercy? Not just an intellectual assent to that statement, but I'm throwing myself at your mercy. I trust in you. If you have not done that, I invite you to do that today. And God says, he promises us that he hears and he responds. But also for the rest of you who are believers, we need to cry out to Yahweh. Yahweh, you are God. And I throw myself at your mercy. Not in the sense I need to be saved again, but Lord, will you work in my life? Will you continue to do what you started? Will you continue to complete that good work that you started in me? So what will your response be? So today I have a response statement. So usually I have a summary point, but this week I wanted to go with a response statement. It's more of an application. For all of us in this room, I want you to examine your life for idols. I want you to think through, what is it that I really do worship? And maybe a question I've asked before that is helpful to identify your idols is, what are you willing to sin to get? And when you don't get it, you sin. Like that, That's a good way to kind of think through uh, idols in your life. So examine your life for idols. And then when you become aware of them, I want you to say this statement. Here's the response statement. It's in your your worship order as well. It's, this cannot save. Only God can save. I want you to look right at that idol, stare it in the face, and just acknowledge the truth. This cannot save. It's foolish. It doesn't hear me. It's impotent. I'm going to hurt myself in trying to get it to answer me. So I look at it and I say, this cannot save. Then remember, Only God can save. And you trust that statement by faith. So this passage is not just trust God more. Instead, it's saying, look at what you worship and turn from it and turn back to the Lord. Turn from the things that promise life but are mute and impotent and destroy you because God is worthy of our trust. He initiates, he hears, he answers, he provides in love. So why not welcome his embrace? That idol cannot save. Only God can save. As a benediction this morning, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to read again from Isaiah 46. Just as a reminder of our God's great power and glory. So let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are gracious to us. We thank you that you are kind. We thank you that you initiate. We thank you that you hear. Help us to turn from our idols. Help us to see. Help us to honor you as Lord. You are our God and King. May we go out from here, worshiping you rightly, declaring, Yahweh, you are God. Yahweh, you are God.
We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.